Welcome. You are listening to Haunted Histories on Paranormal UK Radio. everybody and welcome to this episode of Haunted Histories exclusively on Paranormal UK Radio. I know I say this every single show but how are we all? I hope we're well and there's been lots of stuff going on in the world at the moment and I'm, I'm hoping all this sort of for want of a better term antagonism about everything and anything is going to lead towards a quieter rest of 2021 going forwards but uh, I've been very busy as most of you can probably tell, I um, I was on the Festival of the Unexplained, so it's online Paracon the other weekend where I did a, a talk all about the British school, the British schools movement, whatever you want to call it, specifically the museum that's in Hitchin, which my new book, which is out now called Paranormal Playtime, is all to do with. Um, I will be doing a bit of an announcement on my Facebook pages if people want assigned copy directly from me so just bear with me on that because i'm just waiting for amazon to get through some decent copies for me so that i can uh, start sharing them with you all i also did an interview with the two lovelies from h h a p r c on tuesday we were talking about haunted airfields and uh, i think my favorite comment of the night was somebody turning around saying listen to her i love this woman that was one of the comments that was left and it, it did make me feel all warm and fuzzy and anyone watching it i promise i was stone cold sober that what you saw me drinking was lemonade it wasn't pure vodka or gin i do i do promise not sure what i've got coming up over the next few months who knows who knows what's going to be happening all i know is i'll be hopefully doing loads of new podcasts for you loads of blogs and everything else over on the haunted histories page well this show um, I rarely do sort of purely history shows because I know a lot of you are interested in the the paranormal, but I also know a lot of you are interested in some of the history stuff that I can talk about. And my guest tonight, she, her and I have been talking about this subject that we're going to be discussing for quite a while, actually. Um, when I first told, sort of started saying that I was thinking of writing a book about workhouses, and specifically the Victorian workhouses, she started telling me the story of one of her family members, and we kept chatting about it. And then more and more came to light. She started giving me more bits. And I thought this, she also said she'd like to come on and do a show about it. And I thought, well, I'm going to get to talk about workhouses and World War One. And it's a show's called From the Workhouse to World War One. And, and um, yeah, I thought it was a no brainer. So I've invited her on. Please, everybody, give a warm welcome to the lovely Jane Rowley. Hi, everyone. How are you doing, kid? <laughs> I'm I'm doing all right, actually. Yeah, I'm quite excited to be doing this. So, oh, yeah? 
Are you? Yeah, oh. I am. It's like you've not had enough of me this week. <laughs> oh, I can never get enough of you. <laughs> oh, you sweetie. You sweetie. <laughs> now, oh, it's always interesting, though. So the chats we have are just so interesting that you just, you know. <laughs> I tell you what, I actually did a work um, like seminar yesterday and. Um, it's one of the I'm not used to doing these sort of virtual presentations because I can't see people I'm used to sort of standing up in front of people so I can gauge whether people are bored I can gauge if someone's sort of not understanding what I'm saying and all that kind of thing and and since because of COVID I've in my day job but everything's been switched to virtual and um, I just never know if people are half asleep when I'm talking because I can't see them (laughs) and yeah if they mute themselves I can't hear them snoring either so I'm always hoping that people are finding what I'm saying interesting and not sort of you know putting their head underwater so that they don't have to listen to me so um yeah uh, it's nice to know that someone finds me interesting anyway (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) so how are things how are things going at the um the museum obviously or the research centre, whatever you want to call it, because obviously you're one half of the Haunted Antiques Paranormal Research Centre. I can never remember the full title, but yeah, the the, the research centre there in Hinkley, you're one half of it along with um, Mr. Neil. Yeah, it's it's been a strange time. Um, the centre is actually closed at the moment, obviously because of the lockdown. And Neil, uh, you know, we're very big supporters of the sticking to the government guidelines. Yeah. And, you know, there's nothing going on up there at the moment until the, the restrictions are lifted. So Neil has actually had to go out and get a job, which I do feel quite sorry for him. He's not um, impressed about that, is he? <laughs> <laughs> no. So, um, but it, 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 for me, it's been, you know, rather than sort of looking on the dark side of it, I have actually found it, um, you know, making use of it as an opportunity because mm. for me, it's given me time to do a lot more reading, a lot more research, Um looking at different things in different ways um certainly staying positive uh, i've still been working with some of the items because neil's dropped them off on my doorstep mm-hmm. um if he's been passing and then he you know we've sort of picked them up later on so i've done some work with some of the items uh, so it's been it, it has you know I've, I've still kept going and i think that's one of the things to keep positive keep going and use it as an opportunity to you know advance your knowledge and to yeah. learn more and to do better things yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I think I've I've done more research and reading over the last twelve months than I've probably done in ten years. But um, I just feel sorry for all the suckers that are going to have to read what I've put together over the next. <laughs> um, when when you say you've done work with items, what what kind of work do you do? Well, I, as, as sort of the resident medium at the Haunted Antiques Paranormal Research Centre, I tend to do a lot of psychometry on the items. Mm-hmm. I'll see what spirits, what energies and things like that I can pick up. I generally then draw them in my book and write about them. Yeah. Um, so he'll drop off an item and then I'll sort of sit at home and do some work with it. Um, and I should just perhaps leave it in the front room and see if anything happens and I'll actually sort of connect with it, see what there is. Uh, I'll let the dog have a sniff around it, <laughs> see the reactions of the dog. Yeah. And that makes, it, it's, it's all the interesting stuff. Yeah. So um, it's it's just doing stuff like that. But it just right. stops you going insane, I think. just stops you going a bit stir crazy. So I'm, I'm going to ask a weird question now, right? And this is almost a yes or a no question, which I don't normally do close questions, but it is pretty much a yes or a no answer that... Have you ever had an item that you've had to get out of your house quickly because there is just something not right about it? 
Uh, one of the clowns that we brought from the centre, I brought that home to do some work with it. And that was quite a, a, an interesting, um, I had it on the table for a weekend and I really couldn't wait to get that out of my house after two mm. days because it really did make me feel a bit uncomfortable. And I'd, I don't, you see, anybody that knows me knows that my, my little bungalow is a, a sort of sacred mm. sanctuary and I don't... Um, I don't do things like Ouija boards or anything like that in the house. Yeah. Because uh, I also have two grandchildren. So mm-hmm. this is my sacred, you know, place. And yeah. uh, I couldn't wait to get it out, really. Um, that was one. Was that because it had yeah. bad energy with it or was it because you're scared of clowns? I wouldn't. Uh, well, both. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't. I've never liked clowns since I was little anyway. But um, it, it was, uh, yeah, it, it. I wouldn't say it was sort of evil or negative or anything like that it just made me feel very very uncomfortable and I have actually got a drawing of the um the spirit that's sort of attached to it in my book Mm. and it's not particularly uh yeah this this it it just made me feel very uncomfortable and I I didn't want it sort of I didn't want to spend a long time with it Mm. and you see that's the nice thing about the center because although things are up there you know, when we go up there and we work with them and everything else, you do actually leave them there. Yeah. <laughs> you don't bring them yeah. on with you. So, um, yeah, it was it was quite nice to get him out. Okay. Okay. So have you, have, is it possible to cleanse an item, if you get what I mean? Yes, you can, you can do that. One of the items up at the centre has been, uh, before it came to us, somebody's tried to cleanse it and it does quite smell quite strongly of sage. Right. But it didn't actually get rid of the spirit. It just sort of put it in the background, if that makes right. sense. It just sort of made it sort of a bit more dormant and put it in the background. Almost it drugged just sort it, of masked... sedated it. Almost. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. It sort of masked um, masked the, the sort of um, the, the spirit that was with it. So, um, But we've done some work with that now, and, I, and I've actually sort of, made it actually come back to how it should be mm. so is that one a nasty spirit or is it just someone didn't really understand what they were dealing with um yes I think it was a case as they didn't understand because mm. a lot of people just as soon as there's activity automatically assume it's going to be you know evil yeah. or demonic or something like that and then they they feel that they have to sort of cleanse it and sage it and do all this sort of thing but a lot of time it's just probably just somebody that just wants to stay with that item because they enjoyed it in their life and they want yeah. to just be with it you see this is something i know we're kind of going off what the subject's going to be of our conversation but this is something that get really uh, i get quite passionate about when um you know if, if, if something's happening and someone says oh this house is haunted or this item's got an attachment and my first question will be was is it nasty no but it makes noise it knocks around at night yeah but is it nasty? Does your um, does your sixth sense go? I need to get out of here. I'm going to get hurt. Does does it hurt people? Like deliberately hurt people? Because I also have a belief that when people get shoved or scratched or whatever, it doesn't necessarily mean the spirit's nasty. It's actually just trying to get their attention, and that's the only way it's worked out that it can get people to go. What do you want, sort of thing? But um, I'm not in every case, but in a lot of cases, I think there's almost the jump is automatic. It's demonic, isn't it? It's also yes. <laughs> he wants to hurt them. Um, but it's like, well, why do you have to get rid of it? If it's not doing any harm, it, you know, if it's all it's doing is it's making some noises that you don't understand at night or maybe it moves it slightly. Is it really going to impact on your life that much? 
that you, you need to sort of, you know, I, I, I kind of, um, yeah, I, do, I, do, I just get quite sort of uh, um, opinionated about that side of things. And it's like, you know, just leave it unless it is genuinely trying hurting you or making you feel ill or, and I have had, I, I mean, I, I know of people who've had items that once they've, they've, they've been really ill, they've had loads of bad luck. The minute they get rid of the item, not realizing it's, they might, you know, it might be a piece of jewellery that they give away or they sell on or they lose even and the the bad juju stops happening or they suddenly get better or whatever. And they don't necessarily put two and two together and realise it could be a bad energy that's associated with that. But if it's causing any harm, what's the problem? Yeah. (laughs) I think if, if, if people sort of understood how the spirit world worked as well, not much would be demonic or evil you know it's it's quite it's quite rare to sort of find something that is really really evil attached to an item yeah yeah i mean my my theory is when anyone when i'm talking to someone who's not so from this field and they'll sort of say about you know ghosts are evil ghosts are this and i might say right we kind of work on the principle that a spirit is somebody who's passed from a previous life and i'm sort of oversimplifying this because a lot of the people i talk to about this aren't they don't know the terminologies and everything. I say, it's a person who's passed from a previous life. Yes. How many people do you meet on a day-to-day basis do you, or, or you just walk past in the street who you think really want to hurt you? Like they're just going to take one look at you and say, I want to punch you or I want to stab you or probably not that many. So why do we think that every single spirit is going to want to hurt you? Why don't we just think that maybe they're just a bit annoyed about something or they're just trying to get your attention or, you know, they're just having a bad day. It doesn't (laughs) mean that every single spirit is going to be the only spirits that tend to, to sort of stay with us for one of a better term are those that have got an attitude issue, an attitude problem, or just plain nasty. And I I kind of, once I sort of say that to people, they start thinking, well, actually you got a point there. Um, Yeah. And you know, I, I, I kind of try and sort of, um, yeah, make them look at it in a different way. Get out of the Hollywoodization of it, that yeah. ghost equals nasty, and start thinking, well, it could just be someone who still wants to hang around. Who's yeah, or it could just be a family member. Yeah. I mean, it, it, particularly now in this time of lockdown where people are feeling a lot more depression and anxiety mm-hmm. and, and um, you know, this, this sort of awkwardness or whatever – family members in spirit will be coming around people to try and help them and help yeah. them heal and, and yeah. to try and try and bring them some sort of comfort or peace. And, um, you know, a lot of people have started to notice more and more activity in their own homes. Mm. And it is more than likely just a family member coming around to try and help you. And it's not, you know, it won't be anything demonic or evil, no. you know, and this is, this is, this is part of what the spirit world does. You know, they heal yeah. and they come to comfort people. Yeah. Yeah, which I think more people understand that the less scared they will be, and the less um, it's interesting. But as a medium, and this is another thing that I was having a conversation with a complete stranger about on Facebook, as you do, and it, this the conversation was getting a bit sort of. I, I didn't have an opinion either way. I was more interested in what the, the two warring factions of this conversation. Were <laughs> as a medium, you must get messages for people that they haven't necessarily asked you for a message. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. How do you handle that? Um, One of I think my relatives depends. have come through to you now as we're talking. Yeah. Um, you know, say my my grandmother was trying to say to you, look, can you just tell Penny this? Can you just tell 
how would you handle that? Would you say after that we finish, look, I didn't want to tell you at the time because we were doing an interview, but, or would you say to her, well, look, she hasn't asked for that message. I'm not happy passing it on. I think it depends because, um, you know, if you're in the company of that person, you can tell with their body language or if you know that person, you mm. know perhaps their thoughts on on the spirit world. But I have in, I have in the past sort of said to, you know, perhaps even a random stranger, um, what are your thoughts on on having messages from people who have passed away? And they'll even say, oh, I don't believe any of it, bloody rubbish, you know, I don't want to know. Uh, in that case, I wouldn't I wouldn't sort of, you know, I'd just say, oh, I'm just interested sort of thing. Mm. I think you have to be very careful with people. But I have actually done this in a in a nightclub, in not in a nightclub, it was in a bar in, in um, Dublin. Right. We'd gone there for uh, a birthday celebration and I was just standing at the bar waiting to get served. And I was, I got this message through, This there was this lad standing next to me, didn't know him from Adam, and it just came through so strong about, Granddad Pete, Granddad Pete, Granddad Pete, and you've got to tell him, you've got to tell him. And I just tapped this bloke on the shoulder and I just said to him, um, do you have a Granddad Pete? And he says, yes, I do. And I said, have you seen him recently? And he said, no, I haven't seen him for a while. And the message was, you know, he's got to go and see him. Mm. And um, I said to this lad, well, you need to go and see your Granddad Pete. I don't know why, I don't know, you know, just just go and see your granddad Pete because um you really need to go and see him. And he just says, Oh, okay, then I will do. Um and then he says, You want them medium things? And I went, Yeah, I I I do <laughs> yeah, I try to be so. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I was then trying to just sort of play it a bit cool because I didn't want him to panic. I yeah. didn't want him to um get overexcited or anything like that. And I did particularly didn't want any more sort of I didn't want to get in a big conversation with him. That was it. Just live the message and get out, basically. Yeah. And I, once I'd done it, then because I knew they weren't going to let me go, I, I weren't. They, you know, they weren't going to go until I delivered yeah. this message. And that was one of the strongest things that I've had delivering a message to a complete stranger. And he said thank you, mm. and um, he said he was going to go and see him. You know, and then I got served and had my drink and went off and joined my friends, but. Mm. Sometimes when it's so strong that yeah. you have to give the message and regardless of whether they, they sort of um, how it's going to be received. But I think a lot of it goes into how you deal with it, the way you deal with it, mm. how you are with people, you know, not being too aggressive, not having yeah. a big ego, that sort of thing. You've got to be quite humble and um, very respectful when you're working with spirit. I guess as well, if the message had actually been, he's got to go and see his granddad, Pete, he's about to die, you wouldn't have said the second part of it. You would have just said. No. Um, because well, I, know, I know after my, I lost my sister and she was only 19 and uh, my photo, her photo had been in the papers where we lived, but mine hadn't. And um, I remember I was in I was in the city where I lived um, and this complete stranger, he came over to me, really lovely guy he had a real warmth about him he just grabbed my arm and he said I've got to tell you your sister says she's fine and this was like a week after she'd died and and I was kind of a bit kind of okay thank you um not quite sure where that's come from and at the time it was more of a what and so I'm I kind of don't mind a, a complete stranger giving me a message like that but I think if one came up to me and they said you've got to call your mum or your dad or your uncle or whatever and said some kind of bad reason why you've got to call them then I might be a bit sort of hang on you're not 
I didn't want to hear that. But I can, yeah, like you say, it depends on how you deliver it, doesn't it? But I just wonder what your thoughts were on that because it was something I've been thinking about. Yeah, I think it, as well with the message, you've just got to be diplomatic. You've got to have the respect. And, and obviously you're not going to give people bad news, but they didn't give me the bad news. The mm. message was he's got to go and see him. Mm. And um, I, I don't know why. And I, I didn't really um, want to know no. that, but I just, my job at that time was to just deliver that message yeah. to him and to make that connection. Amazing. Amazing. Well, the, the, what we're going to be talking about tonight is your great grandmother. Yes. Now I'm going to ask you this after what we've just been talking about. Has she told you to tell her story? Has she asked you to tell her story or do you just feel compelled to tell it? I, I do feel compelled to tell it and uh, I've been doing my family tree on and off for quite a few years and I do find with family members that have passed, if I send out that thought and if I send out, you know, the the um, the message that I want to find out more about them, I want to find out information, can they steer me in the right direction, I do find that that does work mm. Um and I do, you know, I, this uh, Beatrice, um, she has come to me a couple of times in dreams saying, you know, why don't you try this? Have a look at that. And, you know, you wake up in the morning and you think, I need to go and look at that. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and where did that come from? Because, you know, I mean, spirit do come to you in your dreams. And yeah. um, that's one of the ways I do find that family members will come through and, and, and steer you in the right direction. Mm. Yeah, I, I must admit, even though I'm not a medium, I get messages in my dreams um, from various family members. Um, and it's a different kind of dream. That's the only way I can explain it to people. It's not like a normal dream. It's almost like it's in Technicolor when I know they want to speak to me. But um, yeah. um, it is. I just wondered if because you were quite um, not forceful. That's the wrong word. When you asked me to do this show, you seem to be very, very eager all of a sudden to do it. And and I did wonder if that was because you'd had a message from a family member saying, look, we really, really need you to start talking about us now for some reason. But, but Beatrice herself was born in um, Derbyshire on the um, 24th of December, 1895. Um, obviously born to, her parents as most people are um robert and jane and 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 the reason we'd start talking about this was because of the workhouse thing and you told me that your your great-grandmother did live at the workhouse in um melton mowbray for some yes. time didn't you um yes. it's, it's quite a tragic <clears throat> it's quite a tragic story really because um it looks like that she went in there because her father had to um go into a um a mental health facility, the one in Leicester. Um, and I also have found the logbook that shows that he went in on the 10th of August, 1905 yep. and left on the 12th of September, 1906. So over a year's worth, it does make me wonder what was, what was wrong with him because they didn't have that many conditions back then. There was literally melancholia, um, hysteria, which was women, um, uh um they i mean they dementia they'd call things dementia but it wasn't dementia as we know it now and so um he went in there and obviously your great 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 grandmother um jane did not have the money to look after the children and ended up going into the workhouse in um 
uh, say I would have assumed similar time to when her husband went into the asylum because I can't actually unfortunately Melton Mowbray's workhouse records aren't digitized so the only way I could actually access them would be going to the Leicestershire records office um which I'm, I'm planning on doing at some point anyway so I might actually look them up while I'm there uh, when they're yeah. open again but so they they went in there and she went in there and, and you, you was telling me about you you um your what your great-grandmother told you what it was like when she was nine living yes. in the house yes what was it she was saying well, she she said that um, she was lucky enough to get uh, one of the best jobs, which was actually in the kitchen, uh, clearing away the tables, um, uh, clearing away food and stuff like that. And she did say that because of the scraps of food that people left, that you know the girls were able to eat that, and that made a massive difference because they were sort of constantly hungry. Um, mm. Although they were sort of although you had your meals that you know there wasn't an awful lot and she she got this job and she did actually manage to um clearing the tables they would eat the scraps and that would make a big difference because um obviously the environment they were in wasn't particularly good yeah so they uh, they used to take the scraps off the tables hmm. see the thing is about i mean melvin mowbray i did i did i've got quite a lot of books and research on workhouses as you can imagine as it's an area I do do an awful lot of talking about um and it was it wasn't a small workhouse I mean according according to the records it was opened in 1836 which was early on because it was only 1834 that the act the Paul or Amendment Act was read um and it had capacity for about 300 people but according to the reports I've read that the masters and the um, overseers and everything else sort of said, we don't feel we can accommodate more than 150. We think any more than that. And we're, we're overcrowding. Um, it did have a casual, what they call the casuals ward, which is where, for want of a better term, people who um, were tramps and vagrants were able to go and stay for sort of 24 hours. They would break rocks, get fed, have a bed for the night, normally have, well, you could call it a bath but they'd all share the same bath water so it was kind of like bathing in sludge if you were towards the end of the, <laughs> you think i'm joking i'm not yeah they would they would actually um be given a nightgown to wear when you went into the casuals ward whether you're male or female and that nightgown wouldn't have been washed it would have just been folded and steamed and so you you could have all manner of bodily fluids crusted into it when you were given it, but you were still expected to wear it. Um, it wasn't, but that, that was their choice. It was a casual's choice to do that. And I think, I know that, you know, with so many of these, these buildings, they are in the process of change. Um, I think uh, pulling a few bits of it down, re- um, redeveloping some of it, but I know the casuals ward, they are talking about completely demolishing if they haven't done so already, because there's nothing they can do with it, which is, is sad really, because that that's a massive bit of history again, lost, which is, is something that I do sort of want to about when they're pulling all this stuff down. But so it did have a casuals ward. Um, and when we talk about the food, it, you know, when you, when you go into some of the museums, like the amazing one at Southall, which isn't too far from you, is it? The the, the, the National Trust yeah. like Southall. And they'll show you what the food was. And it worked out for a grown man. It was around 1,200, 1,300 calories. And you think that's hardly anything. A man should have twice that. But the, th- the theory they had was, well, if we give them better food than what they'd get on the outside, they're just going to come in automatically. Because if they know that the food's going to be better, what effort are they going to make to try and 
cope for themselves. It's going to be, and and this is where you sort of say to people, yeah, looking at it in today's eyes, you know, the workhouse was bad. Um, The food was bland, to put it mildly. I mean, gruel is not something I'd particularly want to eat. But they had to make it really, really unenticing, shall we say, because everyone's going to eat it. And that's also why I believe and i haven't found this documented anywhere but i believe it why that whole stigma about the workhouse was created which i'm going to talk about when we talk about your your um, beatrice's first husband but you know create that stigma and that's going to stop people wanting to go into the bastille or the spike all the other names i used to call it because if you make it look like it's the worst of the worst you know going in there you are at the bottom of the food chain people are going to fight to the death to support themselves not having to go in so, and, and, and I can't find, I, I, I dug as best as I could, and I can't find anything negative written about Melton Workhouse. Uh, no. In fact, mostly, I haven't found anything overly positive, but I certainly didn't find, I mean, yes, there were deaths listed and, and all that kind of thing. But the other reason that a lot of people went into the workhouse was because that was the only medical help they could get yeah um and people died in hospitals so um and actually i i say i've just compiled the 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 2000 um the 1911 census records and i i would say just glancing at the, the 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 numbers the the average age of most of the people in it was over 60 um so these would have been people who you you had no sort of pensions or anything back then no welfare system this was the welfare system so these were people who couldn't work anymore because maybe they were too infirm due to age where else were they going to go yeah and they went to the workhouse so do do you know if you're you're, if Beatrice ever sort of said it was horrible it was this it was that or or was it just a nice place yeah, she did say that it was sometimes it was cold. Mm-hmm. It was, um, you know, it was, uh, uh, and the uh, the mentality, of course, was like the Victorian thing. Yeah. So children were seen, not heard. Yeah. They were supposed to be well behaved. Um, you were supposed to be grateful for everything that you got. Your manners were supposed to be impeccable, you know, please and thank you, um, that sort of thing. But she did also say that they, they had a couple of changes of clothes Mm. um they had one outfit which was their best outfit uh and they wore that they they get changed into that on a sunday morning to go to church yeah as soon as they came back from church they would then expect be expected to get changed back into their set of clothes which was their workhouse work Mm. clothes yeah so they had um uh, only really two sets of clothes to um, when they were in there, because of course you couldn't take lots of belongings. You couldn't. There was take no lots storage. There was no clothes or anything stuff. like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And um, so the living environment, and she was only a nine-year-old girl, so it's the memories of a nine-year-old girl that was in mm. there. And to be taken away from your family, to be mm. living in this environment, it, you know, it, it was. I mean, she never sort of really said about her emotions or her feelings while she was in there, mm. but you could tell that it was very sad. You know, yeah. she went in there. Her mother died while she was in the hospital. Yeah, the day before her birthday. Um, yes, mm. which was, of course, at Christmas. Her birthday was mm. New Year's at uh, Christmas Eve. Yeah. 
and her mother died on the 23rd of December. She It was her birthday on the 24th, and then that I should think that would have been the most miserable Christmas ever because she wouldn't have been able to go and see her mother. No. She wouldn't have been able to go and spend any time with her or sit with her. Nope. And it must have been awful to get that news and just be told then to sort of get back on with your work and, yeah. and you know, um, you couldn't take any time out to grieve or or to 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 be with anyone. No, so I mean I think by the early 1900s they they were being a bit more um, <sighs> accepting of the fact that a child if a child had just lost their parents it wasn't going to be a case of stiff up a lip keep going. I mean there was an element of that because but the the worst thing I find think about it is that in in the workhouse once a child reached seven they were taken into the children's wing for want of a better term um and they, they would only get to see their parents on a sunday so once a week so you know depending what day of the week the 23rd of december 1905 was she might not have seen her mum for four or five days no. um you know she she chances are she would have been depending on how old her brother was she would have been in the same sort of unit as her brother so they would have had each other to an extent but yeah she 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 wouldn't have necessarily been able to go and sit with her mum if she was if she was dying, um, which, you know, and her mum was only, what, 36, 41, around 41 when she died, which is, is so young. And, 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 you know, that, that side of it is what I find quite sort of, you know, there, there was a reason why they did it like that. Um, and children weren't children the same as as we see children now, but yeah, that must've been very hard on her. Not, not almost seeing her mum. Yeah. Finding out she'd, so she'd not, I'm not sure what her mum died of. I would have to see if I can get that death certificate, um, you know, just as part of the information. So, because it is strange that she did die so young. Um, could have been anything. Could have been tuberculosis. Yeah. Could have been cholera. It could have been, um, you, you just, yeah, you just don't, you don't know. Um, uh, yeah. But what, what, what sort of something about the workhouse that people maybe don't realise is, um, in uh when was it 1904 um because obviously a lot of people went in the workhouse to have a baby because you know they they for some reason they didn't want to have them at home or single mums that would have been another one they would have gone in there because they wouldn't have had any support any other way but in 1904 to try and start breaking the whole stigma of being a workhouse child they actually changed the birth certificates so that it didn't show um so it wouldn't have shown say melton mowbray workhouse it would show an address instead that you'd been born at. So unless people knew what that address was, they wouldn't have known you were a workhouse baby. Um, and, yeah. and I'm saying this because anyone doing sort of family research, if they can't work out what the address was, have a look and see if it was the workhouse for that area at the time, because they, they did that to try and help, you know, children going forward to actually not have this, because there was there was a stigma attached to it, and like I say, I think that was partly because they didn't want to encourage people to use it. Um, they wanted it to be the absolute last resort, and it it does sort of make me wonder what position that Jane was in, you know, with her husband in the in the mental asylum, knowing that she had no choice but to ask to be admitted because you weren't forced into the workhouse; you had to ask to be admitted, and they had to. You couldn't just turn up on the doorstep and say, "I'm skin, take me in." you had to go to the poor board first who then had to say what your options were. Um, and so, you know, it, 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 I just wonder what state the mum must have been in to make that yeah. decision. It must have been horrible for her um, because it would have been seen as being shameful. 
um, which I, I, it, uh, it, it, I do think, you know, we, we, we take so much for granted these days, don't we? You know, mm. we have the NHS, we have, you have um, the, the, um, the support from the government, you know, well, benefit right, yeah. and all that sort of thing. And, and, you know, at that time there just wasn't any, but I just, you know, I think if it hadn't been for um, the, the dad, Robert, going into the mental asylum, mm. things probably would have been a lot different because yeah. he was a pork butcher. Yeah, so he um, did a good so, job. That was a, that was a, that was a good trade, wasn't it? And it was one that everyone knew. Yeah. yeah. And he, he had, you know, they were living in, um, in 1901, they were living in Nottingham. Mm. And he was down as working from home as a pork butcher. So mm. whether he had a little shop there or, you know, they lived in the premises, that sort of thing. Mm. And it's only a couple of years after that that he goes into the um, in, into this mental um, into this mental asylum and mm. he's there for a year. Mm. And then they, you know, it, was it that the business wasn't going very well? Did they lose the house? You know, there's lots mm. of things that probably contributed to that because he did have four children as well at that time yeah so maybe you know he just couldn't cope yeah maybe maybe without without trying to sound like I'm being rude or flippant Robert can you come through and tell us (laughs) (laughs) um it's it's one of those things we 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 want to know not not in a sort of gory kind of nosy sort of way but just out of a you know tell us tell us what was going on but so the hospital the the, the workhouse itself um like i say they are redeveloping it but it did become a hospital uh maternity hospital and everything else which is not unusual for workhouses especially after um sort of 1930 when they they stopped being run by these boards the unions and they started being they were called public assistance institutions um and in fact if i sort of go around a place i can normally spot the hospital that was the workhouse just by the design of the building but you were lucky enough to go there before it still got all sort of fenced off and privatized weren't you you were like yeah walk around did you pick up on anything when you were there did anything happen it did well i went with my daughter um because she's obviously interested in this sort of thing Hmm. and you did we were able to sort of walk around because the front of the building the workhouse building is still there the Hmm. hospital is sort of round the back so Hmm. although it's all boarded up you could actually get up close to the building and there is a sense of sort of um sort of melancholiness Mm -hmm. that sort of sadness although it's it's um Although they were there to help mm. people in the most desperate situations, there is this sadness and this yeah. sort of melancholy sort of atmosphere that sort of comes off it. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's the kind of feeling I've got when I've looked around them. That, like, so even though if you look at it, rather than they were there to punish people for being poor, they were actually there to try and you know give them some kind of sustenance. There is almost this kind of I've given up. I, there's nothing I'm at the bottom I can't get any lower than this um yeah. which is, is is sad really but that's what they were conditioned that's what they were conditioned to be so it became a hospital um until relatively recently and in fact I I do know someone who was born there as a hospital um and it, it's changing but the next census showed her living with her dad and being classed as a, a domestic servant but then what what sort of i found interesting was in in july 1917 obviously 
we were, we've been at war for sort of three years at that point. She married her her childhood sweetheart, William Dunkley. And you kindly sent me the wedding photo to have a look at. And, and you were telling me that the, the wedding itself, William's mum was not happy about it. She felt that her son could do a lot better. Um, I hate to say it, as a mother of sons, you always think your sons can do better, no matter how great a girl would be. And I haven't even got mine at the age of that yet. But <laughs> I think that is a mother and son thing. Um, but she did feel that she could do better. And I do wonder, as I was mentioning about that, to do with the fact that her, her dad had had a stint in a, a, a mental asylum, which would have been looked down upon. She had spent time in the workhouse. Her mother had died in the workhouse. So for someone who thought that they were quite good in society, should we say, that would have been something to look down on wrongly, but that would have been something she would have looked down on her for. Yeah, I can understand that. But at the at the same time, um, in 1909, um, when... Robert came out of the mental, uh, well, he came out in 1906. 1909, he he establishes himself in Melton Mowbray with his own butcher's shop. Yeah. And I sent you the picture of that. That was on 20, that was at 21 Timber Hill. Those shops are no longer there because they were all demolished to make a a road. But that shop was very, um, you know, that shop was very successful. Mm. And there's, in the doorway, you can see my great grandma. Um, she used to work in the shop. She used to make the pork pies and the mm. the um, the black pudding and all the things that sort of go along with the butcher's shop, the sausages and stuff. And that business was quite successful. Mm. So, and that went on for quite a long time. So, although they went through all this this sort of bad time, there was then this good time, which was then successful. Yeah. Um, so, the. I would I would have hoped that that success of that business and having that then sort of um, status in the community would have sort of outweighed the bad times that they'd had. Um, yeah, but unfortunately, unfortunately, I don't think it would have done. <laughs> Not with some people. I think yeah. some people would have looked at it and gone, good for him. He's pulled himself up by his bootstraps and he's making a go of things and he's being successful. Yeah, I think if someone was looking for an excuse, it it it, it yeah, it, it's um, yeah. Unfortunately, I, I I know too many people who were like William's mum, and I think they would have found any reason. But what was even more tragic? What was even more tragic is that um, William actually died in France um, on the first of October, nineteen seventeen, and he's 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 buried um, in Zonnebeek in in West Flanders, um, and that because they were only been married a very, very short time. So I think it was the July, wasn't it? July, 1917, yeah. they, they, they got married. Um, some of his, his artifacts weren't sent back or his medals apparently were sent to his mum. Now I find this strange because I pulled up some war records and his, his art, his personal possessions were sent back to Beatrice, his pension um, that he would have been entitled to as a, as being killed in action that had Beatrice down as being his next of kin. So I find it strange that his medals were sent to his mother, whereas Beatrice was definitely down as his next of kin. Yeah. I, I could only go from what my great grandmother oh, no, told I'm, me. I'm not just, know. I'm wondering if there's something more yeah. to it that um, the mother, shall we say, intervened to get them? Oh, possibly. Because she. Yeah, that was one of her memories where she said that she never had the medals of her husband. Mm. They were sent to his mother. 
and mm. she would never hand them over. Mm. But no, I say I found the, uh, the, the there's like a, a, um, a, a logbook, if you like, that shows all well, people who were KIA, what happened to their belongings. And it was definitely sent to her, Beatrice, as was his pension. Um, but it, it is it's tragic. I do believe, and I don't know if you know this, that the battle, he, he was in part of the Battle of Ypres. That's that's what yeah. he's taken part of. And it was actually a, a battle called the Battle of Polygon Wood, which started on the 29th of September, 1917. I think that was the battle he was in when he got killed. Um, yeah. So it's a famous sort of um, part that he was part of, the Battle of Ypres, um, which is or wipers, which is what they used to call it. You know, it's a really famous thing that he was in part of, and he, he tragically, uh, sort of, what was he, 22, something like about 22 when he died, which is absolutely tragic. Yeah. But sadly, Beatrice wouldn't have been the only one to deal with that kind of thing. And she did remarry on the 9th of June, 1919, and she married another war veteran um, by the name of Arthur Norton, who was yep. your, it sounds like this is your life, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> who was your great-grandfather? Yes. What do you know What do you know about Arthur? Well, I know Arthur was in um, Battle of Mons, from mm-hmm. what I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, he was gassed in, in the war, mm-hmm. and he, he came out, and he wasn't demobbed, but he was then put in the Labour Corps, where they supplied all the front line. Mm-hmm. So they didn't actually send him home, but they um, uh, he was then sort of in the supply chain to get mm-hmm. everything up to the front. Yeah. Uh, so I do know that about him. But also Arthur came from Cosby in Leicester mm-hmm. and he had 16 brothers and sisters. So Whoa. he was from a very big family. <laughs> and um, it, it amazed me because when, we, when I was a child, we lived in Poaching Street in Cosby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, they're sort of terraced houses up there. And his address was actually in Poaching Street. So they did actually live in one of these terry houses. And it just absolutely amazed me when I found this out because I couldn't imagine a family of like 19 in one of these terry houses. But they did, you know. But they did, though, didn't they? You would have four yeah. children to a room, which kids nowadays would look at and think that was mistreatment. Um, you know, they'd be called <laughs> hardline and say they were being abused by him to <laughs> two or three, three or four siblings. But, yeah, so Arthur. Now, there's, there's quite a few Arthur Nortons that came from Leicestershire. But I think I found him. I think I found him. And what I think he was, he, he actually attained the rank of corporal in, um, and he was part of the Leicestershire Regiment. Um, and in... On October the 7th, 1918, so just over a month, just under a month, just over a month yet, before the end of the war, he was actually um, sent to Beaufort War Hospital, which is in Bristol, um, which uh, he he was being treated there for shell gas poisoning because they did have a specialist wing at that one for shell gas. So he'd been, he was transferred to to Plymouth um, and sent to, to... Beaufort. Now, interestingly enough, before World War One, Beaufort had been an asylum, mental asylum. Um, but when the uh, British, the War Commission decided they needed more hospitals, and you can find loads of these dotted all over the place. In fact, stately homes would become sort of uh, makeshift hospitals as well. It's fascinating. They wanted at least 15,000 places for hospitals in this country. Not, We're not talking about the sort of 
the battlefield hospitals that there were, but we're talking about in, in the UK. So somebody had got what's called a blighty pass, i.e. they'd been sent back to the UK from the war zone. Um, they actually set, they redeveloped this asylum to be a, a war hospital for uh, to, to contain around 1,400 soldiers. So it was big. Um, and then it became a mental hospital again after the war had finished. Uh, I think it was um, February 1919 it was shut. But what I found really interesting, I was looking at some statistics on this place, and I think your, your great-great-grandfather was in good hands here. I mean, he was yeah. only there for two weeks. He only stayed... Um, no, 24, 20. He, he was released on the 24th of October. Um, but they have, on the records for Beaufort, they rec- they have on their official archives that they treated over 30,000 soldiers throughout World War One. I. I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing number. Yeah. And in that period, in that four years, when they were treating soldiers, they only had 164 recorded deaths. 30,000 soldiers, which I think is phenomenal. And of those 164, 30 of them were actually due to the 1918 influenza epidemic. So their success rate of treating people, I think, is quite phenomenal because, I mean, I do wonder if if a lot of people would have died whilst they were being transported from the front or whatever. But over 30,000 and of that, 164 deaths. Is, is a pretty amazing statistic. So it looks like he was in a good place. He was yeah. in a good place to be treated. Um, now, you you mentioned to me that you've been to some of the, you've been to Belgium where yeah. um, uh, William, have you been to the war graves where William is? Have you done much, much, ex- yes. much ex- yes. to these places? Yes. Um, when I was sort of researching this, there were seven of my family members that went out to World War One, and um, Arthur and um, my other great-granddad, Cecil Brindley, they were the only two that came back. And when I went out to Belgium, uh, there was a group of us that went, family members, and I went and visited all of their graves where I could. Because mm. in some of the cases, the graves weren't actually in a gravestone, but they were just on the time cot. Yeah. Um, cemetery. Not Tyne Cop. Um, Teep Val. Yeah. yeah. They were just they were just there. Mm. And we went to the uh, Menning Gate as well and mm-hmm. um listened, you know, they play the um last, last post. post yeah every day. We listened to that and it is yeah. a very, very moving oh, experience. Yes. yes. Yeah. Very much so. It has me in tears. Every I just hearing it has me in tears. I, I I can't imagine what I'd be like if I was actually listening to it live. Mm. So, did you pick up on anything to do with your family when you were there? Um, I did. There was a one of the one of the family members was in one of the um, the medical posts. We, we we found out which one. I can't remember the name of it now. But when they came from the front, they went to the the like the medical centres, didn't they, where they could be assessed. Mm. And um, we went to one of those. And I did have a lots and lots and lots of things coming through there. There was lots of um, voices, lots of people wanting to come through. Yeah. And I, I just didn't really have the time to sit there and, and do what I wanted to do because obviously we're in a group and we had to sort of, um, it was getting quite late. So yeah. I had to get back. Um, but I would really love to go back and do more work there because I mm. think it, it, these these sites are just um, 
it's it's sometimes it's difficult to put into words about how how the emotions and the the feelings and um the the senses that you get when you're actually sitting in one of these places because um it it's, it it just gets right to the core of your soul it really does mm-hmm. yep yeah, no, I've I've not been to a World War One site. I've been to a World War Two in Normandy, and um, I had to leave because I was overwhelmed. I, yeah, I, I just couldn't. I think I just sat there silently sobbing. I didn't even realise I was crying at one point. Um, yeah, and some of the trenches are still there. You can still mm-hmm. walk around some of the trenches, and and the feeling and the the sadness and the the overwhelming sort of sense of death is mm. is um, even now sort of a hundred yeah. years later you can still pick up the energies coming out of the, you know, in the, in those areas. Yeah. Because it's just so the, the amount of human emotion that seems to be sort of um, embedded into yeah. these um, areas is just phenomenal, really. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And it makes you think as well that these were young men. I mean, we talk, we've talked about William. He was only 22 when he died. Arthur was a similar age when he was invalided back with gas poisoning and you think of a 22 year old having seen what they would have seen having experienced what they would have experienced and then they have to go on and try to live a normal life i mean from your sort of memories from what you've been told was arthur able to live a normal life was was beatrice able to live a normal life after what she sort of her early years i think at that time there was so many people in the same boat that um there were so many families affected by it Hmm. that um, it just become sort of normal, didn't it? And Arthur Norton, I know from um, the experiences of the family, he never spoke about the war when he came back. Right. He and and I I remember my grandma talking about a vest that because he was gassed, he had to wear sort of like a, this special sort of uh, sort of like flannel vest or something to for, right. for his chest. And you know, I remember talking about that. But he never spoke of the war once he come back. And it was the same for my other granddad, my other great granddad that came back. He never spoke of it either. Mm. And I think their experiences were just so um, just so damaging that they mm. just never wanted to recall them. And I think they lost so many friends. Yeah. You know, because they sent them all out in a group, didn't they? Yeah. You you would be all all say from one village, yeah. you would all go out together and you would all be in the same battalion and everything else. And because their theory was that you would look after each other if you knew yeah. each other. Teamwork and, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And because so many of them didn't come back and they lost so many family and friends out there in such horrific circumstances, you can really see why people wouldn't want to sort of bring up those memories. Yeah. It could also have been that because you still had that whole stiff upper lip type thing, they were scared if they did bring up the memories, they wouldn't stop. You know, they, yeah. that if, as if you don't talk about it, it didn't happen. But if you talk about it, whereas now, I mean, it, it was interesting. We, just, we were talking about shell shock before we started recording. Um, and I know that um, the, the, the the psychiatrist who ran um, one of the famous hospitals for shell shock, Craig Lockhart up in Scotland, a guy called WHR Rivers, he was one of the ones who pioneered talking therapy for people with shell shock, encouraging them to talk about what they'd experienced, to talk about what was worrying them because he felt getting it out in the open was the best way of dealing with it, which is quite, was quite new for sort of 1916, 1917. Um, but there was still the, 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 comp, the more normal thing was if you don't talk about it, it didn't happen. You just move on. 
um, which I still think a lot of people feel now, don't they? They think if, if something traumatic happens, don't talk about it. It goes away. Um, so yeah. it, it, it's sort of six or one half dozen of the other. But I, I do I do want to say to people like your great grand your great grandfather to your great grandmother, the stuff they went through. Uh, hats off to them. Hats off to them for being strong enough to sort of say, "Well, we're still going to raise a family. We're still going to." Because, like you said to me, if Arthur hadn't come back from the war, or if Arthur hadn't met Beatrice, you wouldn't be here. No, no, because when the two great granddads that did come back, um, my grandfather was the son of one, and my grandmother was the daughter of another. Mm. So from them, then of course my my mum from from those my you know that my mum came about and then of course me so without mm. them two coming back I wouldn't be here mm. and also as well I sort of think back even further without maybe the workhouse being able to care for your, your great-grandmother if she'd had no money she might not have made it through childhood yeah I mean it, may, it certainly makes you think although the workhouses seem to be terrible places they were so much better than what was there before which was nothing People would just be dying on the streets, dying of starvation, living in the slums, mm. um, living in all sorts of terrible conditions. So although the workhouses were seemed to be um, not very nice places, they were so so much better than than what had been there before. Yeah. That, that, yeah, again, yeah, you, you, you hit the nail on the head on, although not all of them were as decent as it sounds like Melton was. I mean, the inner city ones, when you've got over a thousand people cramming into them um and a lot more people of what should we say questionable repute as well frequenting those ones but you know if it was a choice of dying in the gutter from starvation or having to work every day to earn your food I know which one I'd have preferred but um it was still a very hard decision for 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 um for Jane to have made um, you know, with the worry of not knowing if her husband was ever going to come out either, because that was the other thing, wasn't it? People didn't come out of the asylums. So I think it's an amazing story. And, um, yeah, the more you find out, keep letting me know, because I think there's a lot more in this, this story to find out as as we sort of find more information. And um, and it, do, it does make it, it, it does make it real by knowing one of the descendants of... Um, I think two very brave people. So thank yeah. thank you for sharing it. Yeah, I I think I would say to anybody, if you get the opportunity to delve into your family tree, do it because you know it's um, it's amazing what you'll find out. And I you know even as I'm looking now on on this sort of timeline I've got of Robert, which was um, um, Beatrice's father. He mm. actually remarried again in 1915, and huh. the lady that he married actually um spent all his money and made him bankrupt ah so, he, <laughs> so although he built up this really great business and he had lots of money um when he remarried it um yeah she um sort of took him for all his money and he he went bankrupt so it's okay. a, we didn't even <laughs> mention that goes, <laughs> no but the stories go on don't they so they do they do yeah, I mean, I would say to anyone who's in, yeah, do dig into what your family and and don't be embarrassed about what you find, because what we might look at in twenty first century eyes as not being good, back then it was it was to make to live to 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 you know and um, 
yeah, I, I say I found it fascinating. And I, I think if I could spend a couple more years researching this and getting into the records and, and I will definitely be digging out the un, the workhouse logs uh, yep. when I get to Leicestershire, because I've got some research to do at the Leicestershire records office when they reopen anyway. And so I'll be spending the day there. I'm sure I'll see if I can dig out the records and let you know what they say. Yeah. And just looking into it a little bit more deeper, you know, all these people's lives all the genetics from these people, your ancestors, make up who you are today. Yeah. And that's, that's you know, that's quite a, a deep thought, really, because all these people contribute to who you are today. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, thank you ever so much for talking to me today, Jane. Um, I hope it's been a pleasure. I have found this interesting. And um, yeah, so this is this is a you know this this ladies and gentlemen is a medium who's used conventional research as well as more spiritual research to to ascertain the information that she's got um so do keep that keep that in mind it's it's there's lots of different avenues you can go down so so jane when are we hoping that the research center will reopen for visitors and stuff um i think rough plan I think Neil's hoping for sort of April time. Right. Um, so, but of course, we've just got to see how the um, how the pandemic goes and and the restrictions that are applied at the time. Yeah. So, I just hope everybody stays safe and sticks to Definitely. the rules, and hopefully, we'll all get out of it as soon as possible. And obviously, it, it, you know, you don't just have to listen to Haunted Histories podcasts. Um, Paranormal UK Radio has got loads of different ones you can listen to, but you can also catch up with the the ones that Jane and Neil do. Yes, we do those on a Monday evening. Um, they're from, at the moment, they're from 9 till 11 on the Haunted uh, Antiques Paranormal Research Centre page. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, pop along, join us, have a chat and um, have a listen. And uh, hopefully we'll bring a bit of a, um, bring a bit of sunshine to these, <laughs> so, to some of these days where people are getting a bit fed up. And we try our best. We try our best. Well, that's been Jane Rowley from the Haunted Antiques Paranormal Research Centre, uh, talking about one of some of her family ancestors um, and, and some of the subjects that honestly we could go. I, I could have spent hours talking about Workhouse, World War One, all the different battles and everything else. But I didn't want to put you guys through that. But if you do want to learn more, the, the, the information's there. It's it's accessible. Just go down that rabbit hole and and find it well thank you ever so much for listening to haunted histories obviously my name is penny griffiths morgan as if you didn't already know and all i will say to you is make sure you keep tuned into paranormal uk radio because there's a whole raft of different shows that you can listen to but on that note my lovelies on that note have a good evening sleep tight and don't worry too much about things that go bump in the night <laughs>